We are kicking off a new sermon series uh, for the summer this morning called After God's Own Heart, looking at the life of King David. And depending on how familiar you are with David's story, uh, you'll, you'll know if you're familiar that it's kind of a roller coaster of ups and downs, good decisions and bad. You might be wondering and asking, you know, why spend such a long time looking at David? Why David? But other than Jesus, do you know who the most mentioned person is in the Bible? Yeah, not a fair question. It's David. Uh, Even outside of the narrative of his life, his name is mentioned more uh, because of his legacy, because of how God chose him and worked through him, uh, and how ultimately Jesus comes from David's family line. His name is mentioned more than anyone else in the entire Bible other than Jesus. And there's good reason for that, because David was like the king uh, of Israel, if you were to ask an Israelite when their golden age, when they were at the peak of, 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 as a nation, where they were, it would be when David was sitting on the throne. David is kind of the complete package. Uh, ladies, if you were to come across David's dating profile, you might think that he's quite the catch. You would see that he is musical, that he's going to fight for you, that he speaks well. He's easy on the eyes. He's a dancer, he's a diplomat, and... He might even write you a love song on his way to the gym. So this is kind of who David is. But beyond that, it's not just within the pages of Scripture that David is well-known. Even in our world today, with biblical illiteracy where it is, most people know something about David. You'll notice on the title side for this series, that stone face there, that's actually uh, part of uh, Michelangelo's statue of David. The, the full pack picture actually looks like this. Um, I'll, I'll s- spare you some of the, the details uh, this morning, uh, keep it PG with some Bermuda shorts, but uh, this is a world-renowned piece of art, and, and really, the picture doesn't do it justice. This is 13 feet tall. It took Michelangelo four years to carve this statue from a solid block uh, of marble. And so there was many, when he was done, the story goes that people ask Michelangelo, you know, how, how did you do it? You know, how did you, you know, turn this massive block of of marble into this majestic work of art? And the story goes, again, Michelangelo said, I looked at the marble, and then I chiseled away everything that wasn't David. And I think that's what God wants to do with you and me through this series, like we see him do with David. I think God is going to take us and chisel away everything that isn't him so that we can be people after his own heart. Because that phrase, after his own heart, is one of the key phrases that really defines who David is and why he's so prominent within the pages of the Bible. We're told in many places that the Lord was with him, the Lord was with David. And 1 Samuel 13, 14 specifically says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now please understand, this does not mean that David was perfect. In fact, he was far from it. David could be vengeful and violent. He could be impulsive. Sometimes he looked the other way when he needed to, in passivity, when he needed to be, take action. And of course, his greatest failing, if you're familiar with the story, was when he would give in to his lustful desires and take a woman who wasn't his wife or his own. And we would see that he'll really never, his kingdom and kingship would never really fully recover from that point. But for all of David's shortcomings, He never stopped following God. His heart was never turned to foreign gods as other kings in Israel would be. And each shortcoming that David had was met with him turning back to God. David is in many ways an example to us. 
in my research for this series, I came across this phrase. I think uh, I like it because I think it describes David so well. It says he's a king like the rest of us. The same sins that plagued David, the, the same struggles that he had are the same that often plague us. But the point of David's story, and I want you to understand this right up from the very beginning of the series, the point of his story in this series is not be like David. The point of David's story is not to point to himself, but to point to Jesus. One of my friends who I'm collaborating in the series with, Mark Christian, said, David isn't the story, he's part of the story. God is the story. And so with that being said this morning, keeping our focus on where it needs to be and looking at David as an example for us, but not the model to follow, I want to begin with David's journey to the, toward the kingship that starts in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. Now, 1 Samuel uh, doesn't start with David, it starts with Samuel. And so after God's people, just to set the scene for you a little bit, after God's people came out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, God had brought them uh, to eventually settle into the land of Canaan, this land that he had promised all the way back to Abraham, that he would give Abraham this nation of descendants and he would give them this promised land. And they settle in, uh, as Chris said today, as they crossed the Jordan, and as 12 tribes. And they were told, as these tribes, that they weren't to look like the other nations around them. They were to be different. They were to be set apart. They were to be holy. Uh, and they were to show how God had blessed them and used them and be an example to the nations around them. But of course, as we often do, their hearts would turn and they would fall into sin. And so God would raise up these judges to provide help for them and to help lead them. Now, when you hear judges, you might picture a white-wigged guy in a black robe, but these judges were more like warriors and leaders. They were prophets. Uh, they were men who, and women who could be raised up to deliver Israel and bring them back to where they needed to be. And so as these leaders and warriors and prophets and mediators, one of these, the last of these judges actually, was Samuel. And Samuel is, is one of my favorite people in all of the Bible. He is faithful and courageous. He is obedient. He is a bold witness to God's truth. But as Samuel is getting on in years, the people decide they want a new kind of leader. And so 1 Samuel 8, we see their request. It says, They said to Samuel, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Did you see the problem? See, the problem is not that they wanted a king. In fact, there are actually other places in Scripture where God had already told them that they would probably, they would one day have a king. They would be one day led by a, a king. But the problem is, in this moment, why they ask for the king. And it's to be like all the other nations. That rather than trust in God to protect them and provide for them and to be their king, they wanted to jump the ship. They, were, they wanted to short-circuit the system so they could get to where all the other people looked like. To have a king who would bring them this prosperity and prominence and protection that they wanted. Now, I know that we would never do anything like this. We would never look at what the world has to offer and, and want what it has over what God has for us. We would never do anything like that, but that's where they are. And so verse 6, it continues, but then they said, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so it goes on that God will tell Samuel to tell them about all the things that a king would demand from them. That he would take, in years to come, that he would take high amounts of taxes, that he would use their sons and daughters to serve him and to serve his kingdom. And yet, despite all the warnings, they dig in deeper and they continue to demand a king. And so God gives them a king. 
And God chooses first a man named Saul for them. And Saul, Saul looks impressive on the outside. He's got the whole tall, dark, and handsome thing going for him. And in fact, Scripture tells us that he is a full head taller than anyone else. And so he was this impressive and intimidating presence in all the right ways. And Saul is a good king for a while and at first. But as time goes on, Saul will show that he will put his own desires and his own will above and beyond what God asks of him. And so the defining moment of Saul's rebellion, after a long list of all these different ways that he had fallen short, is the kind of final moment is when God gives Saul the specific instructions to enact God's judgment on this nation of the Amalekites. And as an act of God's judgment, they are to be completely eliminated, even including the, the livestock, the sheep and the cattle. And so Saul goes to war, but doesn't really fully obey what God tells him to do. He conquers the nation. He takes the king captive, which he wasn't supposed to do. And he also keeps the animals. He comes back from battle celebrating and greets Samuel. He says, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> Not really. Because Samuel, I love his sarcasm. He says, um, then why am I hearing sheep buying and cows mooing? Like there's a problem here. You see, Saul begins at this point now to offer excuse after excuse as, as to why, you know, which, you know he, he wanted to do what God had told him to do, but he had better ideas. When all the while, God just wanted his obedience. And so Saul has shown himself over and over again to be someone who pursues his own honor and his own glory and is more afraid of the opinions of people than of God and offers half obedience at best. And so Samuel tells him in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, he says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And 1 Samuel 15 goes on to tell us that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so now we come to David's part of the story. Saul has been rejected. He'll remain on the throne for a time still, but it's now this moment where God needs to anoint a new king and to do so through Samuel. And so God said Samuel to this man named Jesse who is in Bethlehem, but he doesn't tell Samuel which of Jesse's sons will be the next king. And so 1 Samuel 16 verse 6 picks it up. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before, here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel sees this first son, Eliab, and, and thinks, all right, like here, we've got our man here. He is, he is impressive. He is an imposing figure. But we see that he's still trying to fit the Saul mold. He's still trying to find the, the tall, dark, handsome, impressive specimen. But God makes clear that this king is going to be different. It's not what he looks like on the outside that will make him a good king, but it's the nature of his heart. And with each of these passing sons... We see this lesson kind of taking root. Not him, not him, not him. Because it's easy still, even in our day, to focus on the outward appearance. You know, we make judgments based on appearances. We often value charisma over character, popularity over humility and heart. 
Over the last few years, you've probably seen in the headlines these megachurch leaders, these pastors who have had monumental fails and falls after meteoric rises because they looked the part or they were amazing innovators or they were gifted speakers to the extent when all the check-ins and lights came on, everyone around them said, just, just keep driving. The car looks great. The ministry is growing. People are coming. It's thriving until the brakes go out and they careen off into a ditch. And it's in the midst of this that God says, it's, it's the heart that I'm after. Verse 11 says, so Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now I have to ask at this point, how many of you are the youngest siblings in your family? How many of you, keep your hand up, if you are the youngest of at least four siblings in your family? There's a few of you. I love this story for you, because you know that uh, as, as you know, the life goes on, each kid gets a little bit less attention, and it's not purposeful, it's just kind of how it goes. Samuel goes through these seven sons and has to ask Jesse if there's any more, and he's like, oh, well, I mean, there's the runt out doing the grunt work, because you know how it is with the first kid. You know, they get all the pictures, all the milestones documented, all the attention, when our oldest Chandler was a baby, we actually had time back in the day to home make his baby food purees. Now our youngest, Ashford, it's like, hey, your brother is not going to finish his pizza crust. You can have it. Like, that's just, that's just how this goes. And that's kind of how it is for David. Like, they, that, that's David, like the almost forgotten one. And, and maybe David's part of the, this part of David's story resonates with you because maybe sometimes you feel like a forgotten one or that God can't use you. One of my friends, Luke Proctor, he said, maybe you think that in the tryouts for God's team, you wouldn't make the cut. But God loves choosing people who don't think they have what it takes or who the world looks at and says that God can't use them in a powerful way. Gideon said, I'm not important enough. Abraham said, I'm not young enough. Jeremiah said, I'm not old enough. Isaiah said, I'm not holy enough. Mary said, I'm I'm not married enough, you know. There's all these people that think that God can't use them. Back in 2001, President Bush uh, was speaking at a college graduation ceremony, and, and he said, to those of you who received honors and awards and distinctions, I say to you, well done. And to the C-minus students, I say that you too can one day be president of the United States. God can use the A-plus student and the C-minus student. David would be a good king. But in this moment, he was just a teenage shepherd boy who was forgotten in the field and who would go back to the field where it would be another 15 years before he would ascend the throne. He would be a good king, but he'd be far, far from perfect. He would have the same temptations and sins and weaknesses and struggles that we all do, and yet God chooses him. Verse 12, it says, So they sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. I look at, at David and how his family had kind of almost forgotten about him. How he won't go on to be this perfect shining example of obedience. And I come back to that question and I asked at the beginning of the sermon, why David? For this morning specifically, I have to find myself asking, you know, why, why David and not Saul? 
You know, when we look at, at Saul, we see that, that Saul disobeys and God strips the kingdom away. But David, as we'll see, his obedience track, you know, his record, his track record of obedience is far from perfect, and yet God promises him that his kingdom will never end, ultimately leading to Jesus himself. And so we see that being people after God's own heart isn't about perfection. So what is it about? Well, with Saul, we, we notice that when Saul disobeys, he offers excuses. When he makes a sacrifice to God, when Samuel deliberately tells him to wait and not to do it until Samuel gets there, Saul tells Samuel, I, 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 was, I was worried that my men would scatter. So I wanted to rally them together. In other words, he said, I was more concerned that human opinion would win out. It was more important to me than God's command. When Saul fails to completely destroy the Amalekites, he tells Samuel, well, you know, I know God said not to even spare the livestock, but I thought it'd be nice to use these to make a sacrifice to him. In other words, I, I know what God said, but I thought my plans were better. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Saul will try to kill David out of jealousy no less than 11 times. And often he apologizes and, and, and tells David he's so sorry and then comes right back after him a little while later. And yet David... In the moments where he fails and he disobeys, he doesn't offer excuses, he offers repentance. What sets David apart is that he knows that his only hope is to continually pursue faithfulness to God. David is a worshiper. He gives God credit for every good thing that happens in his life. He will, as we'll see next week, go after a giant, even though he's a young kid, because that giant dares blaspheme the name of God. He offers his broken heart when he fails, not because he broke the rules, but because he broke God's heart. The relationship is what is important to him, that even when, even when David makes a mess of his life, he knew whom he belonged to. He knew how to repent. He always ran back to God. He always chased after God. And so when we fall short and sin and break God's heart, what will we do? Which one, Saul or David, will we be like? Do you offer excuses like Saul? It's just a small lie. I didn't hurt anybody. We're going to get married someday. We just can't afford to live in separate houses right now. I came from a broken home. I didn't have a father or my father was abusive. This is just who I am. I can't change it. Well, We just fell out of love. We weren't happy anymore. After what they did to me, they had it coming. Well, I had to fudge my taxes. I could have lost my business. Do we offer excuses for our sins, or do we, like David, offer a life changed? In the moments that we are stuck in sin, do we offer him our open hands and a broken heart and turn away from that back to him? We'll talk in the coming weeks about David and his affair with Bathsheba. In this moment where he stole another man's wife and murdered him to cover it up and just got snowballed more and to more and eventually when the prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him on it, David doesn't offer excuses. He repents. This is the psalm that he wrote in response to that, Psalm 51. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's a lot better than excuses. 
David was a good king, a man after God's own heart, because no matter what happened to him, he faithfully pursued God, even when his sin was the very thing that pushed him far away to begin with. But of course, our story is of a different king, a king who lived that sinless, perfect life and faithfully pursued his father's will above his own. Our king, Jesus, who through his sacrifice paid the price for our sin and died in our place and lovingly welcomes us when we respond in in obedience and repentance. My hope and prayer through this summer is that we allow King Jesus to do a work in us through the story of David and to chisel away all the things that get in the way of a relationship with him, to create in us a pure heart that pursues him faithfully. I want to offer you one more story before we wrap up today. Some of you might recognize the name A.W. Tozer. He is a preacher and pastor and author, but he's also known as a man of prayer. And he was known for waking up very early, uh, putting his you know, full suit and tie on back in the day and going to his church office to work. But as soon as he got there, he would often change into what he called his praying pants. He didn't want to mess up the knees of his suit. Because he would get down on his knees and he would just come into the presence of God. On one occasion, he came into his office and he started to pray and his secretary shows up for work. And one by one, his appointments come, people come to see him, but Tozer never came out of his office and so one by one, the people leave. He missed all of his appointments. Finally, at the end of the day, his secretary just kind of, you know, peeks her head in the office and says, um, Mr. Tozer, I'm going to head out. And he said, oh, really? What, what time is it? He had spent all day in prayer and had no idea. When Tozer died in 1963, they knew exactly what to put on his tombstone. They didn't put preacher or author or either husband or father. His tombstone simply says, A.W. Tozer, a man of God. Because of what Jesus has done for us and in us, may our prayer always be that we would be remembered by the same words, men and women of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we look to the life of David not as an example of one we should model, but God as a king like us. That so often the characters, the people of the Bible, the history, are not the ones that, uh, they're, not, they're not whitewashed or lacquered. They don't come across clean and shiny and perfect because, God, you want us to see ourselves in them and to see how you worked even through imperfect people and you continue to do it today. God, my prayer is that we would be people of repentance. That in the moments where we sin and fall short and break your heart, that we would respond not with excuses of why we did what we did, not try to justify our, beha- our behavior, our actions, but God, rather turn it over to you and give it over to Jesus who took it and nailed it to the cross. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, our King, who did live that perfect life and yet still invites us to follow him, to come along and to experience the hope that he has to offer us. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand.